We press on. I mean, we are, we are actually making progress, shockingly enough. Uh, we, will, we will complete this someday. Uh, and in much less time than the Synoptic Gospels. Much less time. That was, you know, a decade. So uh, we're going we're gonna to finish this off before you know it. But uh, we are still in uh, the medieval period, and uh, I believe, uh, where, did, uh, where did our official note-taker go? Oh, there he is. Oh, well, well, okay, we're on number 45, but uh, we, had, we were... At Innocent the Third, I believe. Yes. yes, 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 yes. We are looking at the expansion of papal power. Remember that uh, after the pornocracy, uh, the old saying, you can only go up from here. <laughs> Once you hit rock bottom, the only place to go is up. And uh, that's uh, what indeed happened uh, with uh, papal power. And you remember... Uh, Gregory the Seventh Hildebrand and his uh, disagreement with Henry the Fourth, and how Henry had to come uh, to Canossa, uh, which was where the Pope's uh, retreat was, and made him uh, wait for three days in the snow before letting him in, and then Henry crawled on his knees asking for forgiveness from the Pope. Uh, this might be considered to be one of the high points in uh, papal power as far as the idea of the two spheres uh, of authority and the supremacy of the spiritual over the political. Um, I, th- I think up until recent years, the papacy has always sort of harkened back to these days and wished for the good old days, shall we say? Um, and it's sort of like uh, Muslims look back on that century after Muhammad, uh, century of expansion is the, the golden days, and uh, uh, many of the uh, papalists look back on these days, and ah, wasn't it great when the, uh, when the Pope had his, uh, had his due. Uh, the next of the great popes to look at is someone that you do need to keep in mind, that is Innocent III. I've always found, as I mentioned last week, the use of the taken name Innocent uh, for anyone <laughs> to, be, to be somewhat problematic. Innocent III, like I said, I didn't, I didn't grab my, the pretty pens back there, but. Kelly's working on Sunday mornings now. Her shift changed, and so now I could use whatever color I want. Nobody'd get to complain. But uh, innocent third, and his dates are eleven sixty one to twelve sixteen. Eleven sixty one to twelve sixteen. Um. So what's it like to sit in a history class when you're doing it all the time? Is it just the same old thing? Same old, same old? Yes. It's a relief not to have to be doing that yourself. Um, he becomes Pope in 1198, so right at the beginning of the 13th century, uh, right before the beginning of the 13th century. 
Uh, he was elected at 37 years of age. Uh, his view of the papacy can be seen in his likening, and this is very important in their thinking. I mentioned the two spheres. And so uh, Innocent likened the papacy to the sun and the civil authorities to the moon. So, as we know, the, the moon actually does not produce any light of its own. It is simply reflecting uh, a greater light. And hence, from his perspective, uh, this would indicate to us the reality that uh, the papacy is actually the source of all authority and that the civil authorities merely reflect that uh, greater authority that is actually seen in the papacy. Uh, like Gregory before him, Innocent had conflicts with secular uh, rulers. Uh, for example, John of England disputed the appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, the chief, really the chief prelate in, uh, in England and uh, so Innocent you excommunicated John, and then he used what is called the interdict. Now, this was a really specifically and nasty um, card to play, play to perform, whatever you might say, from the uh, clerical or religious side. Um, what the interdict involves is the Pope saying to all priests that they are to suspend uh, all of their activities within a particular area. And so that would mean uh, no religious services, no baptisms, no confirmations, no burials until the king gave in. Now, that wouldn't have nearly the impact today that it did then, but realize that from their perspective, the baptism of the child, there's a huge amount of, of uh, infant mortality. This is before the plague, but there's still a huge amount of infant mortality. And so uh, if your child can't be baptized, uh, then your, your child is being banished to hell. And... Uh, uh, Final rites before death, burial, Christian burial. Uh, I mean, you're, you, you'd, you would think, in looking at things from our perspective today, uh, that this would make the Pope look really bad in everybody's eyes, but there wasn't anything they could do about that, the Pope's Pope. Um, what it did is it put huge pressure upon John, upon the secular ruler. And so John uh, caved in. Uh, gave a papal tax of 1,000 marks and made England a vassal state to the papacy. And so here's, here's Innocent III, and he has tremendous power, uh, wields tremendous power, uh, even in the secular, in the secular realm. Uh, we will see that he also uh, engaged in some pretty amazing uh, statements uh, religiously as well. Uh, at a, a later point in our, uh, in our study. And then uh, finally, the, the last of the, these incredibly powerful popes, Boniface VIII.
it's the 8th, and uh, let's see, 1234 to 13.03. Um, he struggled with Philip of France and Edward I of England. Philip and Edward were at war with one another. That's really not unusual for England and France, uh, historically speaking. Um, the issue revolved around a tax upon the clergy to help pay for the war. Um, a uh, papal bull, Clericus Lycus, forbade clergy to pay taxes to a temporal ruler. Edward replied with parliamentary action. Philip forbade money to go from France to Italy. So in other words, these kings now started using economic retribution toward the Pope. Uh, and so what happened is... Uh, uh, Philip invaded Italy and took Boniface prisoner. Um, he was eventually released, but uh, Philip kept a papal legate as a hostage, basically. And so you, you sort of see a downturn now at this point, uh, where uh, the response from the secular rulers is to use military force. And even though there would be a time... The, there was time coming when uh, the Pope would wear armor and lead an army. It was never a very large army. And so uh, Italy and France, obviously, close neighbors. You can invade and do things, and that's exactly what, uh, what takes place. You can sort of see a, a rise and then the beginning of the, the downturn of the uh, authority of the papacy at this particular uh, period of time. Also during this period of time, and of course, you know, the, 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 the question always is, you know, how do you organize dealing with historical subjects? If you, you can't do it strictly chronologically because so many different things are going on in so many different realms uh, that you sort of have to cover things topically, generally. But we also have, during this time period, uh, something we all know about, but not a lot about. We've heard about them. And they are called the Crusades. Hear a lot about them today uh, in light of the rise of militant Islam. It's interesting. Uh, it's not until last literally decades uh, that uh, Muslim writers have started to use the Crusades as a religious thing. Up till then, it was just, from their perspective, it was just military campaigns and just... This sort of way things were. They've learned to use it because of people in the West. They've learned to use it as a argument uh, against Christianity and things like that. But at the time, they just viewed it as not so much religious as it was political. Uh, the Crusades last for about 200 years, uh, about 1100 to 1300. Um, the stated purposes was to win back land lost to the Muslims, especially in Palestine, but also in Spain and France. There were crusades in Spain and France as well, uh, because, as you recall, the Muslim expansion went across into uh, what would be Spain, Portugal, and up into France. Uh, the expansion was ended uh, 732, Battle of Tours, uh, Charles Martel, the Hammer, da-da-da-da, and all those guys up there and their whole dynasty and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, and so there is a pushing back of the Muslims out of 
mainland uh, Europe there in, uh, in Spain, Portugal, those, uh, those areas. Um, what caused the Crusades? Well, the Seljuk Turks invaded Palestine, uh, attacked Christians who were on pilgrimages to Jerusalem and other of the holy places. Uh, if you think that only today uh, there's a lot of uh, tourism <laughs> in Israel, that's, uh, that's the case. It's been that way for a long time. Uh, and so in uh, 1074, Gregory called for a crusade. Uh, Emperor Alexius from the east appealed to Pope Urban for help in 1095. So this, was, this is only, what, uh, 50 years uh, 50, around that 40, 50 years, 40, 40 years after the great split, uh, it must have been a little bit embarrassing for Emperor Alexius uh, to appeal to Pope Urban for help, but they did. Um, there was at this time a European famine, uh, which made things difficult. Most of the crusaders, therefore, that went on crusade, at least initially, were from the upper classes, um, there was also a real strong desire uh, for trade in Europe at this time, especially material coming from the east, such as silk, pepper, cinnamon, things we take for granted, had to come from the east. And the Muslims were uh, threatening the trade routes uh, that went through this particular area. So never forget economics. It's always lurking in there someplace. Um, and things were boring in Europe <laughs> during the Middle Ages. So you got to admit, for a lot of these folks, it was the love of adventure. Um, the Pope promised, and it is true, you've heard this story, uh, that if one wore the cross uh, and were to die uh, during the Crusades, uh, that they would uh, skip purgatory. In other words, they would uh, receive a plenary indulgence and... Uh, go straight into the, uh, the presence of God as long as they were wearing the cross and hence all the pictures of the paintings of the uh, crusaders. The cross is very prominently there and it's not overly shocking that uh, most Muslims today believe the Christians actually worship uh, the cross in light of uh, the history that has existed down through the, through the years. The uh, first crusade uh, began under Pope Urban in 1099. Uh, now, realize, you, you can't... It's not like... Even, even when we, everybody knew we were going to be invading Iraq, it still took time. Uh, even with modern transportation and all the rest of that stuff, uh, it still took time to stage the army and the materials and, and everything else uh, put it all together. Can you imagine when everybody is on horseback? And it literally takes months just to travel from one nation across a couple other nations to another nation, whatever else it might be. Um, and so things just obviously can't move as quickly uh, in the ancient world as they, as they can today. Uh, the people were spurred on by the preaching of such notables as Peter the Hermit and Walter the Penniless. Uh, how would you like to have the name Walter the Penniless? Uh, I guess that was supposed to be a good thing. Um, 
The journey was very long, uh, fighting the Turks all the way. I mean, it's, it's long ways from France and northern Italy and central Europe uh, across uh, all the way, you know, all the way down into, into uh, Muslim lands there. They arrived uh, at Constantinople um, and finally did arrive in Jerusalem and established the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem, which was sort of discussed. And what was that, mo- that name of that movie? Uh, kingdom of Heaven, is that what it's called? Yeah, Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, I'm not sure how many years ago that came out, but it was uh, sort of what was being discussed there. And uh, that Latin kingdom of Jerusalem uh, lasted until 1187, so quite some time, quite some time. It was a medieval feudal kingdom, uh, but the, the First Crusade basically was, uh, was successful. But it left uh, the people there uh, in somewhat of a precarious situation. And so uh, the uh, Second Crusade was uh, organized but failed miserably. Bernard of Clairvaux was involved in getting it organized, but it became involved in many petty wars and finally an ambush in the gardens of Damascus in 1147, and uh, it, uh, it was a, a, a total failure. But then you have probably the most famous one. It's called the King's Crusade. began in 1189 and ended in 1192. And this was the one led by Philip Augustus of France, Richard the Lionheart of England, and Frederick Barbarossa, the Holy Roman Emperor. So that's why it's called the King's Crusade. This was all the lovely people were involved. And um, the crusade was uh, plagued by problems. Eventually, Philip took his army home, said, enough of this. This isn't nearly as fun as I expected it to be. Uh, we're going home. Not enough pastries here. He was from France, remember. Um, now, it's interesting, Frederick Barbarossa was in, you know, his, uh, his battle armor and uh, fell off of his horse in a river and drowned. <laughs> I don't want to fall into the water uh, wearing armor. Uh, I, I don't think it, I don't think it uh, floats well, you know, and uh, it'd be horrible to be trapped inside that stuff and uh, just knowing, I ain't getting out of here. Mm-mm, this is, uh, I've only got a few seconds left, and, uh, and here we go. Um, but they kept going under Richard, the Lionheart, and they got within sight of Jerusalem. They could see it, uh, but only got concessions from the Muslim leader uh, to allow pilgrimage and pilgrims to enter in and so on and so forth, but did not actually make it all the way to, uh, to Jerusalem. Um, the Fourth Crusade used the idea of now, what's the problem with, what's the problem here? It's a long ways to walk. <laughs> it's a long ways to ride a horse. It's a long ways to carry food. It's a long, it's, it's just too long. So the Fourth Crusade used the idea of sailing to Egypt rather than fighting through all the land routes. And besides that, the Muslims are figuring out there's only a certain number of ways to get here. So uh, let's uh, fortify these areas. Uh, good strategy, poor economics... Uh, they got to Venice, but not to Egypt. 
the city-state of Zara was causing Venice some problems. And so the Venetians promised that if the Crusaders would take Zara, then they would take them to Egypt. The Crusaders said, okay, and that's what they did. Um, they, uh, they took out the, the poor folks at Zara. And, and here's one of the great massive blunders of history. Uh, since they were in the neighborhood, they sacked Constantinople while they were at it too. Now, when I say massive blunders, uh, Constantinople had stood as the gateway to Europe holding back Muslim forces um, since the 8th century. And so if the Crusaders come along, and because there it's animosity between the Venetians and these city-states like Venice were in constant competition for money. It was trade routes. It was all economics. And they owned the sea lanes. They had the navies. Um, since they used the opportunity to damage Constantinople to enrich themselves, then it's only going to be a couple centuries till the Muslim armies are at their gates because of the foolishness of their ancestors. But that's what happened. And they weakened Constantinople. And as you know, Constantinople falls in the middle of the 15th century and is very important, as we will see, to the uh, Reformation and what took place during that, uh, that time period. Uh, then we had the Children's Crusade. This was... Uh, it was made up of boys 18 and younger, led by Stephen and Nicholas. Uh, they felt that all the other crusades had failed due to spiritual impurity, which probably wasn't an overly bad theory when you, when you really think about it. And so they thought, uh, let's take innocent young people. And because we're spiritually pure, then God will, will bless us and we will just be able to walk right into Jerusalem and free it from the infidels. Um, they marched to Genoa where Stephen and Nicholas had promised uh, that the Mediterranean would part for them. Now, that does solve all of your transportation issues when you think about it. Um, don't have to worry about ships going to Egypt. Don't have to worry about land routes. Uh, if the Mediterranean just splits for you, you just walk on through, and that sort of, you know, that sort of works. Um, they get to Genoa, and uh, you walk up to the seashore, and uh, the Mediterranean didn't split for them. So they were offered, the, the Genoese offered them uh, three ships for transport, which they got on. And uh, two of them disappeared. The third went to Egypt and sold everybody on it into slavery. So um, the Children's Crusade didn't, uh, didn't go very well. The results of the Crusades, the object was not achieved, obviously. By 1291, the Crusader states had all collapsed. Uh, feudalism in uh, Europe was weakened by the movement of knights and lords who had to sell off land to be able to support themselves on their trip. This did help with the rise of the middle class. 
uh, when feudalism breaks down, you've got these people that have some money, but not a lot, but they're no longer just scraping by, digging in the dirt. Um, this new class established free cities that were not under the authority of a lord specifically. Uh, this, hence, you start getting some semblances of democratic government or representative governments and city councils that we'll end up seeing a lot of in the Reformation, especially in Zurich. Good example of something along those lines. Uh, trade was enhanced, especially for Italy. Um, and uh, there was also a decrease in morality at this time as well. War tends to tends to do that, and it didn't really matter if you had a cross on your shield or not. Uh, the Crusaders were not, as a group, the um, most uh, holy of individuals uh, in, uh, one, might, uh, one might recognize. So, there you have a brief, very, very brief. There's much more that could be said. There's all sorts of, well, like, you know, there's lots of movie fodder and everything else uh, in, uh, in that, but... Um, we, we, press, we press forward uh, into some of the doctrinal development during this time as well, which might interest some of you a little bit more than some of the, uh, some of the history. Uh, we've talked about this briefly before, but one issue to see is the development of purgatory and the treasury of merit. Uh, we mentioned earlier that Gregory I, Gregory the Great, um, the Pope uh, back, talking, let's see, 600 years earlier than this, um, Gregory the Great really pushed forward the idea of purgatory uh, based upon 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and some apocryphal works, which even he recognized were apocryphal works. Though, again, it's, it's important to to emphasize that purgatory as it exists, well, I was about to say as it exists today, but that's not really a fair statement either because I'm not 100% certain that the current Pope actually believes in purgatory. Uh, I don't think he believes in purgatory the way the Council of Constance uh, defined it, or the Council of Florence, I'm sorry, uh, defined it in the 15th century. But when you think of the fully developed doctrine of purgatory that would have been prevalent only 60 years ago within Roman Catholicism. Uh, the idea of uh, literal suffering, uh, indulgences, uh, the scapular, the, um, uh, the promise, uh, if you wore the brown scapular, if you died wearing the brown scapular, that Mary would descend on the Saturday after your death to uh, uh, deliver your soul from purgatory. It's sort of hard. You know, t- today a lot of Roman Catholics like to say, well, you know, the church has never formally said that there's really like time in purgatory. And it's like, uh, yeah, look, if, if Mary's going to descend on the Saturday after your death, sort of hard to miss the time element of that, you know? And for centuries, um, indulgences were measured in, in days, months, hours, weeks, so on and so forth. Um, and it's, it's really easy to try to spiritualize that later on, but it's painfully obvious what was believed at the time. 
um, you know, today there's a lot of spiritualization of all of that, and especially in Western Catholicism. I mean, you go to a lot of places in the world today, and there's, that's not there, but uh, certainly in the leadership. Anyway, uh, Gregory I had made great strides, but there was still a lot to go until you get to the final doctrine of purgatory in, the, say, the 15th century, which was pretty much fixed until modern times when nothing is all that fixed anymore. Um, you had the development of the doctrine. So we've got uh, purgatory here. And then we have supererogation. That is not superirrigation. Um, now, you might say, were you trying to be funny? No, but I, I, I did hear a radio debate between a Catholic apologist and a non-Catholic apologist um, where the non-Catholic apologist kept talking about super-irrigation. And um, eventually the Catholic apologist, oh, I have to give him credit, he, had, he held... He held off for a while, and it, but eventually the non-Catholic guy got nasty enough that he finally, you know, just went ahead and said, "By the way, you've mispronounced it the entirety of this time. It's it's not super irrigation like you're overwatering the crops. It's super irrigation. Uh, it's a different word." And and he was right. I mean, um, the guy he was debating, well known for an ego the size of Mount Rushmore, but anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. Um, super irrigation uh, developed out of the concept of purgatory and it meant that, that when Christ or the apostles the martyrs died their good works outnumbered their penitential debt and so it's all based on and we've discussed this briefly before but uh, it's all based upon this idea of temporal uh, punishment for sin if you commit a mortal sin, a mortal sin destroys the grace of justification and you're no longer the friend of God. And you have to be re-justified. You lose, if you're, just, you're justified by baptism and you lose that grace of justification by the commission of mortal sin, so you have to be re-justified through the sacrament of penance. But then there are temporal punishments upon your soul for the sins you committed that have to be worked off in this life, and if they're not worked off in this life, then they have to be worked off in the life to come. Venial sins do not destroy the grace of justification. You remain justified. But there are temporal punishments for them as well. And if you have not suffered enough in this life, have not done penance properly in this life, um, then that's what purgatory is for. You can't have the temporal punishments cling to your soul when you die and go straight into the presence of God. So there must be a place of cleansing, and that cleansing is through suffering, and it's not through the sufferings of Christ, through your own sufferings. Uh, it's called the concept of satispatio, the suffering of atonement. And so the idea that developed during this time period was that one of the popes taught um, that... Christ only needed to shed a single drop of blood 
to redeem the whole world. But since he shed his blood copiously, then there's all this extra merit that results from the shedding of his blood. Then Mary, likewise, being sinless, had a tremendous amount of extra merit. And every saint, if you're a saint, and this is, again, mentioned this earlier, but in Roman Catholicism, you have two different kinds of saints. They recognize that the church doesn't know all the saints down through the ages. There are people who have died that will only know were saints later on. And then you have those who have been canonized by the church. Well, the church is just recognizing particular individuals in that way. They're not making them saints by that process. And there's many saints that have lived that have not been canonized by the church. So there's two different ways of looking at sainthood. A saint technically is a person who has more merit when they die than they have penitential debt. So, in other words, the, the scales are, are even or tipped in your favor. One of the two. There's, they just don't, there's, it's not negative. They're either even or positive. And so you don't have to go to purgatory. You're already cleansed. And so you can go directly into the presence of God. That's what a saint is. Well, what about those who scales tip positively in their side? They've got more merit than they actually need. Well, what happens to all this extra merit? Well, that's what the concept of supererogation is. And that is that all that extra merit of Jesus, Mary, and the saints goes into what's called the thesaurus meritorum. The thesaurus meritorum. I guess that's a, that's, a, that's a cool phrase to be able to throw around at, you know, Thanksgiving parties or something, I guess. Say that again. Thesaurus meritorum. A little bit low for you there. Uh, what are you doing sitting in the back, bro? Uh, are, you trying, are you trying to hide from, uh, from you know, people or that? Or when you, when you put your, start putting your hand up, uh, she can grab it and you hold it down uh, so that uh, you're not doing a Hermione Granger in the front row. Um, anyway, uh, the Thesaurus Meritorum, the treasury of merit. And so all that extra merit goes somewhere, and it's, and it's controlled by the church, and it's controlled by the power of the keys. And so this is the idea that then gave rise, once you've got the thesaurus meritorum, well, what if the church makes a withdrawal, a transfer of funds, so to speak, uh, well, a withdrawal from the treasury of merit credited to an individual's account, basically, is called an indulgence. Ah, we are getting close to the Reformation, aren't we? Um, an indulgence. And so that's the theology uh, behind the concept of indulgences, which continues in the Roman Catholic Church to this day, as I mentioned before, uh, even Pope Frankie, uh, just last year, during the Jubilee year, um, 
It had been the tradition during Jubilee years that there were certain cathedrals in the world. I think there were only like 12 of them, maybe even five. I, I don't remember the exact number, but a very small number of cathedrals around the world that if you walk through these certain doors that are only open during the Jubilee year, all you got to do is walk through this door. You receive a plenary indulgence, a, a complete remission of all the temporal punishments of your sins up to that point in time. So, you know, you could almost wish that you walk through that door and poof, get hit by a bus. Uh, because then you're, you're no, no purgatory for you. You're straight, you're straight in. Well, Frankie, it, it became pretty clear that uh, last year, those cathedrals were not getting much in the way of pilgrimage traffic. Not anything in comparison to what they had before. So he designated a whole bunch of others. Uh, let's just throw open the doors to the treasury of merit. He's a good socialist. Why not? You know, uh, bankrupt the thing. And uh, uh, so he's, he's big into um, indulgences, plenary indulgences and all the rest of that stuff, which you would go, well, that must mean he believes all... Nah, that's not, that's not really how it works. It's, you know, from his perspective, it's probably much more of just a uh, very spiritualized... Uh, type thing, the idea that there's actually uh, a ledger, a ledger of of merits and demerits and stuff like that is would not really fit into his thinking, I don't think. But anyway, uh, indulgences remain at least officially uh, the teaching of the church uh, to this uh, to this year by by a long shot. Um, you also have, as we will see in the Reformation, uh, the relics trade. Relics. Um, it, it frequently shocks American Christians because the U.S. is so young. Uh, you know, when, when we were over a few months ago in Germany, you'd, you'd visit these castles, and they're talking about stuff that happened hundreds of years uh, before the founding of the United States and you're visiting castles that are you know, so much older than anything here other than Indian ruins someplace you know up the Montezuma's well Montezuma's castle or something like that would be old, as old as these things but they're not nearly as uh, grand shall we say anyway um, when you go over there uh, if you go into some of these uh, Roman Catholic cathedrals, you know, a lot of American Christians are like, there are skulls everywhere, and there's bones, and this is really weird, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the relics. And uh, it's not nearly as shocking for them as, uh, as, it, is, uh, as it is for us. But we mentioned hagiolatry, hagios, the saints, Hagioi, the holy ones. So hagiolatry, the, the veneration and worship of saints, um, that belief in the early church led to the rather gross uh, collection of, of relics a, a, a church that had many relics or a good collection of relics would have more status than one that had fewer. 
And uh, you could boast that, well, our church has the left femur of St. Thomas, uh, you know, and uh, that, that made your church more spiritual than somebody that only had the uh, left toe of Papias or something like that, you know. Um, and so the collection of relics, and, and certainly you go into some of the Eastern churches and entire rooms filled with uh, pretty much all the bones of all the monks that have ever been in the nearby monastery. And, and most of us are just repelled by that. Um, but for many of them, that's an indication of how long they've been in the faith and a testimony to the continuity of the faith and things like that. Just ways of thinking that you and I just sort of go, oh, that's creepy. Uh, but they would look at us and go, what's with you people? Uh, so you have hagiolatry, the value of relics, and we will see when we get to Desiderius Erasmus that Erasmus loved to poke fun at the, uh, at the relic trade. I think his best quip uh, by far, uh, was pointing out how many uh, true pieces of the cross there were in Europe. He said if you collected all the true pieces of the cross in Europe, you could build a ship with them. So uh, he was undoubtedly quite correct about that, uh, but it also gave good insight into the fact that everybody knew this really wasn't a true piece of the cross. Uh, and, and, and the nails, you know, the nails from the cross, they, they were... There were tens of thousands of them. Uh, and it, it couldn't have, you know, all you had to do is visit two or three collections before you started getting the idea. Might have to be somewhat skeptical about this, but skepticism was not the uh, spirit of the age. Uh, looking at the clock there. I am unfortunately in a um, difficult spot here because uh, the last two items here are rather important in my opinion, and uh, that is the development uh, during this time period of the concept of the sacrifice of the mass. Uh, This is, I think, one of the most important doctrinal issues, and the formulation Uh, of the final orthodox concept of what we call transubstantiation and the sacrifice of the Mass takes place the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 with the use of the specific Latin phrase transubstantiation. Um, In light of that, I don't want to rush it, but I would say that um, when... I am often asked, when do you think the Roman Catholic Church came into existence? Uh, you, know, you know me, I have a strong aversion to that kind of question, as if one day there wasn't one and the next day there was one. These are all matters of uh, development over time. But if, if I am correct in understanding that the most definitional Aspect of Roman Catholic theology is the sacrifice of the Mass, uh, then I would, I would have to say 1215 is probably the best date. Uh, Wycliffe, for example, recognized that transubstantiation was a, was a novelty, that it had only been defined barely 170 years before his, his, his day. 
and uh, he was correct in recognizing that. And so uh, what developed up to that, people such as Ratramnus, Radbertus, Gottschalk, great name, Gottschalk. Uh, that's, uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful term. Um, great name for a dog. I'm not sure I'd do a, a kid, but uh, I, I, think, I think a dog named Gottschalk would be, uh, would be right on. But anyway, um, we will uh, make that our next subject of discussion and that'll get us into scholasticism and the rise of universities, the Inquisition, witchcraft, mysticism, and then pre-Reformation reformers. So uh, we're, 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 we're moving on. We're, we're going we're gonna to get there, and uh, uh, we're going to get it done someday. It will happen. So, All right, let's close the time we're prayer. Father, once again, we do thank you for this opportunity of considering uh, the past, of recognizing uh, those who have come before us and their difficulties and trials, uh, truths and untruths. We ask that uh, we would be prepared in our hearts and minds to go into worship, Lord, that uh, you would be honored and glorified in all that takes place in this next hour. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.